This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Anthony Burgess was one of the most important and prolific British writers of the 20th century. Most famous for his dystopian vision, A Clockwork Orange, he wrote 33 novels, 25 books of non-fiction, and over 250 musical compositions. This podcast aims to illuminate Burgess's life and work, and his connections to other 20th century literature, film and music. So join us as we explore the world of Anthony Burgess. In this episode, Andrew Biswell explores Anthony Burgess's adventures in America with the help of Christopher W. Thurley. Burgess first visited America in 1966 when he was 49, but over the course of his career he gained extensive experience of both living and working in the United States. These experiences influenced some of his most important work, including earthly powers, and he analysed American culture extensively in his journalism and non-fiction. Christopher W. Thurley is an English faculty member at Gaston College in Dallas, North Carolina. He earned his doctorate, which focused on the life and work of Anthony Burgess, from Manchester Metropolitan University. His monograph, Anthony Burgess in America, is forthcoming from Manchester University Press. Here's Andrew Biswell, who spoke to Christopher W. Thurley in March 2023. Chris, welcome to the Burgess Foundation podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Now, you've been researching Burgess in America for, I think, more than seven years now. And maybe I could begin by asking you how well Burgess knew America, how widely he travelled in the US, and what kind of work he was doing when he was there. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's actually been longer. It's almost nine years of, of looking into Burgess in America. Uh, I mean, I would I would argue, and I think uh, my work is going to kind of prove uh, that Burgess knew America pretty well. Uh, he traveled to uh, I've I've come down to the number thirty eight states. I'm pretty sure it's thirty eight American states. Uh, the only ones not visited were Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, Maine, Mississippi, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, North and South Dakota, Oregon, and Wyoming. Uh, he went everywhere else. So that is to say that he's probably visited, he visited more American states than the average American. And he probably talked to uh, a very diverse group of Americans over a scope of uh, the last, you know, uh, 20, no longer than that. He first visited in 1966. He last visited uh, in 1993. Uh, so we're talking decades of time talking to Americans being in America. He lived here for several years uh, simultaneously. Um, I think that he had a good grasp of American culture. He he was a, an outsider, always an outsider. But as we'll talk about today, too, I think that he, he tried to kind of immerse himself into America and be a little bit of a kind of American. And what was the work he was doing when he was there? It was uh, largely uh, teaching and lecture engagements. So um, most people know of his CCNY uh, stint where he spent a year at City College of of New York. Uh, But he also spent uh, a month at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He spent several weeks at the University of Iowa, several weeks at the University of Buffalo. He was an adjunct at Columbia University. He spent a year at Princeton University. 
Um, so, you know, very large, uh, prominent, uh, distinguished schools that he spent a considerable amount of time at. He got invites from even more, and and uh, he went. He visited. Um, it was over a hundred and twenty or so schools, something along that nature, uh, along that number. But there was also so there's lectures, there's teaching, there was some music, uh, as many Burgess uh, scholars and readers know at the University of Iowa. But there was also scripts, film, plays. We had the Tyrone Guthrie in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the the uh, stage play of Oedipus uh, that was put on, as well as Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, so he had his hands in a lot of stuff. He he wrote a, a Hollywood a Hollywood script for uh, a Shakespeare movie that never got made. Uh, he thought he was going to do Puma as well. Uh, so he was all over the place. He was very active, and I I I think too if if people look at the uh, the record of him in like the New York Times and American publications, the American scholar. Uh, it wasn't just that he was traveling from state to state, but he was publishing in American magazines and, and newspapers frequently. Well, there's a lot there and we must come back to it. But um, I'm interested in his, uh, his college work. We know from all the contracts and so forth that he had uh, a very busy time in the mid 70s, uh, kind of lecture tour that took him everywhere, maybe a different city every night at the, the height of his traveling. But I wonder, do we have any idea what the students he was talking to thought of Burgess? I mean, were there interviews with him in campus newspapers, for example? There were some. Um, more than what I found, I think, happened more uh, often was that people would go to his lectures. Um, they might ask questions in the audience or something. And then a, a student journalist would write down basically some quotes from uh, what's happening. But I think uh, University of Buffalo has a recorded interview. Um, there's the University of Pennsylvania or Penn State University, excuse me, uh, recorded him for a little uh, interview about behavioral psychology. I un I unearthed a couple interviews. I think there were only three or so that were completely new to to people. And the conversations book really grasps uh, the most important ones. Some of them printed in like the Columbia Spectator. Um, but I I think too I think students American students at this time thought that Burgess was a part a part of the counterculture. Uh, especially once *A Clockwork Orange* came out, but as uh, I, you know, I hope we'll talk about too. He wasn't just known for that for uh, a lot of the lectures that he went on. It wasn't until 1971-1972 that *A Clockwork Orange* comes on. But when that happens, I think students thought he was part of the counterculture. He's he's the creator of *A Clockwork Orange*, and he's part of the kind of youth movement. And and then ultimately, you know, a, a 50, 60 year old. Um, man comes up and gives a talk and they realize that it, it wasn't exactly what they thought uh, it was going to be. But he still gave very humorous talks. He gave uh, very kind of raunchy uh, <laughs> lectures as well that I think were meant to kind of work into uh, what he thought he was supposed to be at the time. Now, one of the things that I think is a very important aspect of your new discoveries is that you've you've shown, I think, definitively that it wasn't just post A Clockwork Orange that Burgess became famous. He was already quite well known to American audiences before the release of the Kubrick film and partly through his appearances on television um, pre-1971. 
and maybe you could tell us something about these uh, these very memorable performances that he did uh, on, for example, the Dick Cavett show and the Firing Line program. Yes. So um, so while on campuses, too, while giving lectures, he's giving lectures about like pornography and obscenity and censorship before A Clockwork Orange has even come out. Uh, and there are um, letters with um, professors, too, who are writing to him, talking about his his nonfiction Joyce uh, work and some of his other nonfiction books and The Wanting Seed and A Clockwork Orange and, and the earlier books in his career um, before the movie came out. So they're just interested in, in Burgess before the kind of cinema fame. Uh, and before that comes out, he had already had a, a lecture tour in America. He was on the Dick Cavett show twice uh, before um, A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick came out. So it's not like it was just the film that made him uh, famous. He had also, he, so he visited in 1966 for a, a kind of visit to Long Island University and Vanderbilt University. He was looked at as a scholar author, kind of uh, talking about the modern novel um, at a panel with Richard Elman at Vanderbilt, um, as well as Alan uh, Tate and other professors and writers and, and biographers and so on. Uh, so I think that is the the way that America had perceived him was that he was just this erudite person. He'd written a lot, but he was also capable of doing kind of um, scholarship, uh, whether he, he called it kind of quasi-scholarship, but I mean, ultimately it is a, a form of scholarship. And that's why he was invited uh, by multiple institutions to come speak. He was a very, I think, charismatic, good speaker, funny, brought in people's attention. Uh, and I think that word spread too, and he just started getting invitations everywhere. One of the places he went was Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and he keeps coming back to that particular uh, period of time that he spent there. It's in the autobiography, but it also shows up in the fiction. And I wonder why the Chapel Hill experience was particularly memorable as far as he was concerned. My, from from where I came from with this was my research actually started at Chapel Hill. Uh, when uh, I was at a University of Angers lecture with Ben, Dr. Ben Forkner. And Don, uh, Dr. Ben Forkner talked about uh, how he had met Burgess in Chapel Hill. And at that point, I had known very kind of cursorily um, that he had been there, but I didn't really know the significance. And then when I came back to, I'm, I'm in North Carolina now, uh, I wanted to do some investigating and I started uh, finding some news articles um, that were in the archives. I contacted them. I went out there and I started doing interviews with professors that were there. Um, and what I gathered after all that, after talking to all these people and finding all these kind of small elements, I think that Chapel Hill was kind of his entrance into America. He was given validation to stay at a campus for a month as, as a kind of visiting scholar, visiting writer, uh, writer in residence, I think was the official title. Um, and they gave him teaching duties as well. Uh, kind of, he kind of <laughs> forced his way into some of those teaching duties. Um, but he, he had teaching duties too for, you know, teaching literature. It wasn't just a creative writing, uh, pursuit, um, which he kind of forced. And I think they wanted him as a creative writing, uh, talker, but he forced himself into other classes as well. Uh, but ultimately too, it was, I think one of the biggest disappointments. Uh, because when Burgess 
came to Chapel Hill. He's he's the writer in residence. He's this big kind of figure. He gives a, a lecture to the campus. Uh, and I think some old guard professors at the time, I don't think, I've actually, professors at the time have told me that some old guard professors uh, were not very happy with the content of his talk, which was obscenity and pornography. They thought that he was kind of this... Um, um, uh, unprofessional figure. He was. He went to parties. He drank with people. He, he kind of schmoozed. He gives a provocative lecture. Uh, he's loud and kind of bombastic. Uh, and then Burgess thought, I think, that he was going to prove himself as a as a scholar, as a showman, as a writer, and that he would be congratulated by that, especially with a PhD. He thought he was going to get a an honorary or a full doctorate out of this experience. And that was ultimately uh, turned down. Uh, it, it actually went to a department meeting. And uh, I don't want to say names because the people who told me this were very particular. They don't want to like shame, especially people who have passed on. Uh, but there were certain pe individuals who said, absolutely not. We don't want him in the doctoral program. We're not giving him a PhD. Basically, he needs to go away. And it was the younger professors and the doctoral students uh, at the time, especially uh, Dr. Ben Forkner, Patrick Samway, uh, Dr. Thomas Stubb, uh, Weldon Thornton, who had gravitated to him, uh, uh, the younger kind of faculty and doctoral students, and kind of um, had fun with him, engaged with him in that way. But there were other people who were not impressed. And I think that's why it, it's a lasting kind of legacy in the way he talks about America. Now, apart from all this um, activity on campus, which is obviously very wide and very substantial. Burdis was also involved from about 1968 in scriptwriting projects for Hollywood. First of all, the Shakespeare film that ultimately didn't get made, though he wrote the words and the music, and it got quite a long way before it was cancelled. But other projects too, um, for example, the, the Puma, um, which is an apocalyptic um, story about the end of the world, a planet crashes into the earth, and well, not to spoil the story, but that's that's how it begins. Um, and this is obviously important to him as well, but beyond the scholarship, the the, the kind of um, showman. And then there's the Broadway work as well, which is another aspect of his creativity. Can you uh, tell us tell us more about um, how that went and, and how successful these projects were? Well, they were not successful because nothing ever went to the uh, to actually become a film. Um, I think to you, you said uh, that he was in, interested in, in doing these kind of things. I think it was largely kind of money. Uh, I think he was interested in cinema and everything, and if it, it worked out, he would have enjoyed the process. Um, but he made a good amount of money getting these, uh, these payments for these scripts and so on, even if, if nothing got made. Uh, so yeah, Will or the Body Bard comes out of um, the actor Bill Conrad, had reached out to him uh, almost immediately after Lynn had passed away. Um, and I think they were in, in some discussion. 1967, he actually got contacted by uh, Warner Brothers uh, to do this. And you see in the Los Angeles Times, um, a couple other publications in California, notices in 1967, 1968, that Burgess is writing a new Shakespeare film. And um, it's it's going to come out, and this is the the producing company and so on. Bill Conrad invites him out to Hollywood after Lynn passes. Um, they have a discussion. This is also the genesis of MF that comes from this, too. Um, 
uh, talking to this individual. Uh, so he writes it. It's finished on Christmas Eve, 1968. The script, the 145 page script that is now at the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Um, and it's sent, but then there's a, a, a shakeup at Warner Brothers. There's new management and everything basically um, gets shut down. And I thought that I actually found a letter from his agent at the time, Deborah Rogers, who had kind of a, a humorous, uh, I don't think it was intended to be humorous, but she sends him a letter uh, that says, you know, unfortunately nothing worked out and sorry and have a good trip to North Carolina. Uh, and, and that's basically the, the death of Will and uh, Will or the body bard. But as with uh, anything that Burgess did, he wasn't going to let that slide. And uh, he kind of uses it into Enderby's Dark Lady later on. Um, Puma, uh, the, the, the kind of screen adaptations and stuff were not a huge focal point of what I was looking into and researching. And I think uh, Dr. Paul Wake did a fantastic job in the Irwell edition of Puma going over the intricacies of it. Uh, but this gets turned into the, the narrative and the end of the world news too. And his research for um, the New York book uh, by Time Life is incorporated. This knowledge of New York City is incorporated into this disaster movie. Um, you know, I, I, I think if we were to uh, guess at what would have happened if these things were made, I think Burgess would have been, you know, a household name, but ultimately all of these uh, crashed and failed. Well, you mentioned MF. I wonder if I could take you back to that, uh, really the first of his American novels, uh, certainly the first of his novels narrated in the voice of an American character. And there's clearly a point where he makes a decision to write more directly about America. Um, so tell us more about that novel. I, I think most people won't have read it. So let's start from first principles. What is MF? What's it about? And, and you know, how far do you think it works as a novel? Well, summarizing MF into a, a quick a soundbite might be a little difficult, but he, it's not the first book that he claims is his American book. It's the, it's the first book I, I claim, and I think many others would agree, that it's his first kind of American novel. He says that The Clockwork Testament is his only American novel and the only one he really wanted to write. Um, I don't know how much we can agree with that, but uh, there's a decisive shift in his style, I think, at, at, um, as, as MF comes out in 1971. So he's writing it in 1970s in America. He's, uh, he's teaching largely in uh, New York City. In, um, uh, he's gone to other places. And he's seeing youth movements. He's on Dick Cavett uh, talking about these things. He's writing in the New York Times about youth movements, counterculture, uh, all the kind of tumultuous uh, events going on in America. And then we get MF, which is supposed to be this uh, anthropological kind of structuralist novel, which is, I think if you boil it down, it is talking about the, the uh, Oedipus myth, but he's relating it to... Uh, American culture. And it's all about uh, this kind of incestuous nature of American culture, uh, based on the kind of theories of, of Levi-Strauss, Claude Levi-Strauss. Um, I, you know, I, I in the, the, my research and the writing that I've done, I, I've kind of deflected any, you know, does he do the structuralist uh, attempt well? And I'm not really concerned with that. Uh, I, I think people will argue constantly about whether he achieves this or not. But 
what I think he does is he wraps it up so closely to America that we cannot avoid that. It is a book about um, American culture, American mythos, and the way that he kind of sees it. And it's wrapped up in a, a kind of puzzle book where everything has multiple meanings. Uh, there's polysemy, there's uh, illusions, there's double entendres everywhere. Everything is kind of a code. And it, and it all comes down to kind of um, almost like race consciousness in America too. And how he sees America as being um, kind of over-sexualized, over-focused on race consciousness and um, homogenization of both race and culture. And it, it's wrapped up in this, this first American character, Miles Faber, who's a, a, who's a black American um, who has family in um, Central America. And he's at a, it opens with him in Massachusetts at a, at a university having sex in public. And then it goes from there. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think um, what this is doing too is if you've read, if you'd read anything before uh, MF, you'd see a different style in Burgess too. There's a, there's an, an attempt to not have kind of explicit vulgarness or uh, uh, laying like um, swear words and so on in there. And then after MF though, it's like all bets are off the table. Um, there's a, a lot of very explicit language in there, explicit kind of sexual descriptions. And I think too, that that is an influence from American culture at the time. You look at, the uh, the other movies and books that are coming out during this time, the things that Burgess was reading, this is very much in the the the, the vein of the the zeitgeist, essentially. Right, people like Philip Roth, who, who I think he he had huge admiration for and had met in London before he um, began to live in America in the seventies. I, I can see a line maybe from Portnoy to um, MF, perhaps. And then there's uh, Terry Southern, who gives. Um, the a Clockwork Orange text to Stanley Kubrick, uh, who is writing books like Candy and Blue Movie. Candy becomes a film as well. Uh, and it, Terry Southern's idea was that Blue Movie was going to be this uh, Hollywood porn movie that was going to be uh, something that was art, but also pornography. It never got made. Uh, but there, this is during the porno chic era too, where, where films like Deep Throat are trying to become almost Hollywood in their pornographic film presentation. So, uh, and these, it's during a kind of strange era where the laws aren't uh, very concrete and the, the theaters don't necessarily have um, uh, restrictions on what they can show. So we have things like Deep Throat being shown in regular movie theaters where other films are being shown. So, and Burgess is, is very much aware of all of these aspects, especially living in the very diverse uh, kind of cosmopolitan city of New York City. He, he knew all of these things. He was aware of these aspects. And I think it's him trying to, to get into the culture. Additionally, there's, there's Gore Vidal too in 1968 with uh, Myra Breckenridge. Um, so there, it's very much an American theme of kind of highly sexualized, violent, um, kind of odd, uh, um, ridiculous uh, sexual proclivities going on in literature and film at the, at the time. One more point about MF. There's a beautiful moment on Dick Cavett where 
Cavan asked Burgess what the title means. Um, and obviously in his head, he's thinking, is it male, female? Is it Miles Faber? And this is prime time. You can't possibly swear. And uh, you remember, you, you've seen it. Burgess looks at Cavett and he says, it means what you think it means. <laughs> and whereupon <laughs> Cavett's face falls. He says, oh, that's the only thing I hadn't thought of, uh, which is a, a very elegant way of getting around the, um, the, the sort of encoded uh, rudeness in the title, I suppose. Um, now, Clockwork Testament is another of these American novels. It's a book which emerges, we think, from a period where Burgess wanted to write a book based on Dante's Inferno. The, uh, the Clockwork Condition is the book he, he abandoned and he wrote the Clockwork Testament instead. So I wanted to ask you, how far is it to describe that novel, the Clockwork Testament, about the poet Enderby who's teaching creative writing in New York as a kind of vision of hell, do you think? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, just if we, if we think about his time on Cavett too, that some of these crazy experiences where he's kind of a comedian um, as well as uh, in another episode, someone yells at him that he's wrong about Shakespeare speaking like, um, you know, Boston, people in Boston, and he gets into kind of a dialogue with this person. I think some of these like ridiculous uh, little concepts and, and um, you know, these ridiculous experiences end up turning into the Clockwork Testament. And I think at the time that the, the Clockwork Testament is published, so we're, we're looking at 1974, the, the marker that I put in, in my work is 1977 as being a shift with uh, Burgess's feeling towards America. I think something deep down changes where he's kind of done. <laughs> He's happy with the money. He still will engage in um, in certain activities, but he starts writing in letters around that time too. You know, I'm not willing to um, not be paid for a, a nice hotel, uh, for a direct flight. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm getting older. Um, my price has gone up. Um, I, I, he's not willing to do the kind of big lecture tours anymore. And I think in 1974, we start getting the glimpses of the, what happens in 1977. He's getting frustrated. And America is starting to uh, really wear on him. Uh, and I think, I mean, I, I don't disagree that um, well, he, he says it, that there's some inspirations with Dante and kind of descending into hell. Um, and he latches onto that in Enderby's Dark Lady, too. Um, there's the mention of going to uh, Terra Haute, not Terra Bassi, Terra Bassi, which is a fictional town, which means lowland, where the real town in Indiana is Terra Haute, uh, which means highland. So he's playing still with this idea of continuing to descend into American hell, uh, which Enderby's Dark Lady and the Clockwork Testament are supposed to take place at the exact same time. It's just um, different timelines, essentially. So I think there there is that there, but it's not the only inspiration either. We know that he had named it, he had a couple other titles for it. It was Enderby in New York or Death in New York. So he's he's relating it to Death in Venice. Um, the use of Testament too, which uh, thanks actually, thank you to Dr. Biswell, uh, which we discussed many years ago, is likely a kind of allusion to the Testament of Orpheus by Jean Cocteau. Uh, so he, I think he, there's a multiple things that he is pulling from, uh, but I, the vision of America just being this chaotic place where no one knows culture, where everybody is, is kind of silly, 
where they can't transcribe a show correctly. People don't know Gerard Manley Hopkins is is dead. They're trying to contact him on a phone. I mean, it, it does have a level of absurdity in hell uh, wrapped up in it. Um, but I, I uh, an interesting point, too, is that uh, this comes right after probably one of his most infamous kind of public gaffes and public... Um, combative uh, approaches to higher education in America, which was at Fordham University in 1973, in June 1973. He was asked to come give a um, a, uh, a graduation uh, talk, a graduation uh, ceremony talk. And then he went on to bash the university for um, not having a, a certain level of decorum, I guess, that he expected. And then the president of the University of Fordham spoke out publicly against Burgess and, and claimed that he was demanding liquor before he talked and he spoke down to people. <laughs> and then the, the, uh, the English department head, I think it was, of City College of New York responded to him publicly uh, and said, well, I never had problems with Burgess when he was at CCNY. And so, so I think this too, this public kind of uh, feud that took place and what he claimed uh, in multiple publications that Fordham reminded him of everything that's wrong with, with higher education was kind of a, something that helps turn the clockwork Testament into this absurd, ridiculous, hellish landscape of, of incompetent people around Enderby. I'm pleased that you mentioned money as well, which is, it's an important part of the story. And looking at the contracts for this lecture tour, uh, I was astonished to see that in the early 70s, I mean, 74, 75, Burtis is getting $1,500 a night, or sometimes as much as $2,000 just for showing up and giving what we think was substantially the same lecture every time, the, the meaning of a clockwork orange or something. Um, and of course, he, he refused for anyone to record it so that he could send the same material around in different places. But, I mean, do we know what he spoke about when he, he arrived um, at different um, campuses uh, and colleges in this lecture tour? And, you know, they I think large audiences turned out to hear him sometimes talk about Clockwork Orange, sometimes other subjects, but but you know much more about this than I do. He, yeah, there were, there were actually times where he refused to talk about um, A Clockwork Orange. He returned to Princeton at one point and... Um... They asked him to give a talk about a clockwork orange, and he refused. And he read from uh, Napoleon's Symphony, <laughs> and I think one other piece. Um, but yeah, that was so. This is after Kubrick's film had come out, and I think he kind of saw the the opportunity to make money, and he was making a lot of money. I make a, a point of this. I don't have the figures in front of me, but now he was he was making six figure income i mean you said $2000 per uh, lecture that's close to $10,000 uh per lecture in today's kind of currency and he's we're talking about doing 30 of those he was making a considerable amount of money while also we see comments in in journalism and books where he says that he had no money because he had to pay for the plane tickets Ready to pay for the hotels and so on. And I don't know how much we can believe that, uh, especially you know knowing that he had multiple houses throughout Europe as, as well. But uh, I mean, America helped fund him, and that was one of my my biggest arguments of the of the whole book is that his lecture tours, his American audiences actually uh, 
provide Burgess with his career. It's thanks to American money, something that he criticized frequently that actually gave him kind of the the financial freedom to to be the Burgess that we re, we remember remember now. And I'm not criticizing for him for that. I'm just I think it's interesting that that conversation has not been discussed. That uh, it's really in, in America where he makes a, a considerable amount of that. Uh, those funds for his life, but no, he he's do, so he's doing multiple lectures. He has the the meaning of a clockwork orange that he's doing over and over. Uh, he has obscenity and their limits. He there's a there's a kind of list of lectures that they can choose from. Uh, the the company that produced his lecture tours would send out basically a sheet and was like, this is what you can choose from for lectures. And there was James Joyce on there. There was Shakespeare. There was obscenity, uh, I think the modern novel, um, and then there was uh, a, clockwork or, or, a Clockwork Orange. And ultimately, that ended up probably after the film was coming out. I think that becomes the most frequent talk that he gives. But really, I mean, we don't know exactly what was going in there, but we do know the reporting in a lot of the campus newspapers. And they basically discussed that the, the talks would turn into kind of some of the other talks that he would have. It would talk about uh, pornography, obscenity, censorship. It would talk. It would turn into kind of stories about Kubrick. A couple times he he uh, publicly denounced Kubrick for multiple uh, in multiple different ways, calling him a a, a pornographist at one point uh, or something along those those lines. Um, but it, it's it's funny how some of the talks would seem to meld into the same themes. Uh, uh, there's one particular, uh, which actually Kenneth Toomey in Earthly Powers actually gives some of the exact same lectures that Burgess did, like the, the modern novel or something. Uh, but in that talk, it's actually about, uh, obscenity in the modern novel. Uh, but that's kind of left out of the title. I don't know if it's because the production company maybe didn't want to advertise it, but then when Burgess shows up, that's what he's talking about. Um, but yeah, uh, we see a, a ton of a clockwork orange. The meaning of a clockwork orange is probably the, the most frequent um, lecture that we see. We also see some at like Purdue University. It's a clockwork orange novel and film lecture. So they're they're asking for him to talk about not just the book, but then also the, the film as well. In the middle of all this frenzied activity, one of the other books that Burgess um publishes is the illustrated New York book for Time Life, which is a kind of uh, picture book with a, a commentary, historical commentary. There's fiction in there as well. And I think one of the things he says in that book is that he describes himself as a New Yorker. And the, the book hasn't been reprinted in recent years, probably not since 1976. So maybe you could tell us something about it. I mean, describe uh, what kind of a book it was um and also uh, i'm interested to know what you think of burgess's claim to to be at that time a new yorker it's a it's a really interesting book i actually have i've read it twice and i was looking over it um in preparation for this and i want to look at it again really because at, at a at a point when i read it i think i thought it was just a kind of stock um tabletop picture book uh, that had been cleaned up by the publishers. And it was, uh, I think uh, you actually gave me a letter where it's the, the time life 
editors said, you know, we fixed up an entire chapter, we cleaned some of these things. So some of the Burgess, the Burgessian aspects have been stripped out. But when I was looking over it recently, too, uh, I mean, it's still very much a Burgess production, uh, a Burgess composition. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of provocative comments and, and personal anecdotes uh, thrown in there. I would love to see it reprinted, possibly without the pictures, uh, too, just as a text. Uh, and it's written, too, at a time when he was working on another project called Eyes of New York which is a, a much more uh, creative project where he opens um, talking as if he's kind of Ishmael of Moby Dick, uh, talking about the, uh, the American species, uh, all the different types of Americans and their, their eyes and, and so on. And so we get him as this, this person who is uh, creating almost a little uh, oeuvre of American texts as this, this British, this British visitor. But I do think, I mean, when do you become uh, a person? I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in New York, but I didn't grow up in New York City. I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I mean, I haven't lived there in 18 years. Am I still a New Yorker? Um, or is, uh, is has Burgess visited, you know, he visited more states than I have visited in my own country. Uh, so does that make him, <laughs> you know, uh, more knowledgeable about America? Uh, I, these are these are definitions that are that are highly subjective. Uh, I think having lived there for several years, he was a kind of American. He was an expat. He was a visitor. He was a foreigner, but he he lived there, uh, and he knows New York City better than I think, at, especially at that time, uh, better than a lot of other Americans. And uh, all the traveling that he did, and all the people that he met, I mean, he had a much more diverse kind of perspective of. Um, of Americans than, than many people who live in this country. So for him to have that uh, perspective too, I think it's healthy. Uh, it's very kind of uh, very much in the, the ethos of Mark Twain, right? You have, in order to know your country, you have to leave it and come back. Uh, as an outsider, he was able to, I think, tap into some of the, the, um, the problems in America, some of the kind of illogical things that, that cultures and societies do and point them out, not always to favorable review by Americans. Uh, but so he writes, he gets, he gets up, um, basically chosen to, to write a book about America or about a uh, New York city. Uh, and then tells this, the perspective too, of institutional poverty of the problems that are, that are going on in New York city. It's clear that he did a, amount, a good amount of research to write uh, the book as well. So he was, he didn't take it lightly that he was just commenting on, you know, his kind of impression of the city. He was trying to actually do a little bit of kind of reporting. It's very interesting. I mean, Burgess moved around so much. I'm thinking too of the film he made about Rome in the late 70s, where he says, oh, I'm, I'm a Roman. You know, I've, I've got a house here. <laughs> I have spent a lot of time in Rome. Sometimes when he's in Ireland, he, he's Irish as well. And I, I think he's such a chameleon that, the, you know, these identities, uh, you know, he kind of takes them on at various times and then maybe moves on to the next one, uh, which is not at all to deny the importance of his, um, his American uh, New York experiences. Now, America, of course, remains a preoccupation in the later novels, especially uh, Earthly Powers, also The End of the World News, and uh, Enderby's Dark Lady. And um, these were very successful novels, some of them. Uh, I was just looking up the contract for Earthly Powers. The, the US edition 
was sold for $275,000 and they printed 100,000 copies of the first edition. Um, you know, so clearly there's, there's an excitement uh, um, on the part of his publisher. Um, they paid much more than the, the British um, publisher, for example. But my question here is, um, do you think Burdis's ideas about America changed over time? And is that reflected in the fiction that he went on to publish in the 1980s? It's a, I think it's a, it's a complicated question to answer because it, it's a both yes and a no. If we go back to his earliest fiction or the earliest evidence really of we ha uh, that we have of him talking about America, which is all the way back to Time for a Tiger uh, and really A Vision of Battlements, um, he's, he's talking about America being this, this homogenizing place, making plastic of the world, uh, of its popular culture spreading everywhere and kind of infecting people of ridding the, especially in the Malayan trilogy, ridding the, uh, the, the people of Malaysia of their own culture, moving in and kind of displacing people and stripping culture for this homogenizing Americanization. Uh, I don't think that ever left him. He always had that idea of America being this kind of cultural juggernaut. He actually uses that term, I think, at one point. Uh, that's just demolishing everything in its path. Uh, but at some point, he becomes immersed in it. He becomes a part of uh, the kind of capitalistic cultural elements of, of America. And I think clearly he sees a personal benefit of that. Uh, but then he, he does grow very cynical uh, about America. And I th as I said before, in 1977, something changes. Uh, I think he's at that point so fed up with um, what he sees as kind of the vapidness of American culture. Uh, at one point, he makes the comment, um, you know, America uh, enjoyed me for a little while and that time is basically over. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so he's like, I had my moment in the American sun and it's done. Uh, they, they, they're very quick, rapid people. They get latched onto something and then, you know, whatever. If you can't keep up with the pace of a, the American kind of uh, popular culture um, evolution, then you got to get out of the way. And he basically says, I'm done. I leave. And I, I'm more of a European, as you said. Uh, everywhere he goes, he becomes those types of people. Um, he, uh, he leaves and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm basically done with that unless you can pay me a big amount of money. And then I'm, I'm happy to come back to do a talk or to do a book, uh, a book talk or a le book lecture tour or so on. Um, so it, it, the answer is he was always suspicious of America and Americanism and American politics and American culture. Um, he realizes some of the benefits of it. He recognizes that uh, America is... Uh, where the, the Western man is going to kind of find himself. That's another paraphrased uh, quote from him. But then he, the, uh, he also becomes very cynical and uh, depressive about the overemphasis on kind of low culture, um, lack of uh, erudition, the scoffing at kind of intellectual matters. He sees politics in America as just being this kind of silly game uh, that people play. Uh, and then he essentially kind of removes himself uh, from it and says, there's not, there's not a whole lot of seriousness going on. And which is also why back to one of our earlier points, why he adored Dick Cavett, 
Dick Cavett, he said, I think is on his la- last uh, visit to the show or one of the, he, he visited eight times, I think. He said, he, you're the only talk show host who has read all of Henry James. Uh, you're a writer, you're, a, you're a, a thinker, you're an educated person. Uh, he says at one point, you know, Johnny Carson probably doesn't even know who Henry James is. Um, so he sees Dick Cavett as being a kind of last, last uh, bastion of hope for uh, uh, American intellectualism. Um, and then he sees it kind of slipping. And uh, even though he's still selling, I think, more books there than, than anywhere else in America, anywhere else in the, in the world, he sees a, a kind of philistinism that is uh, taking deep root and he doesn't really see it as being, uh, I don't think, redeemable. Uh, which is why he he exits. You got me thinking as well that in in both volumes of the autobiography, he for some reason he begins both of those books um, with the, these very vividly drawn episodes in America, in Little Wilson and Big God, and you've had your time, um, which I, I'd not really thought about properly before. Maybe I need to go away and, and think about some more. But in a sense, they're both American books, uh, particularly the the second volume just because um, it's it's a subject he can't leave alone. There, there's got to be a sort of fascination there, even the, in spite of the, the terrible things that you've mentioned that he sometimes says about American culture. Yeah, I mean, the you've had your time. This The second part is almost all America, I, I think. I mean, it's probably, what, uh, two-thirds maybe focused on kind of American culture and and all of his, of his travels throughout America. I'd have to look back at it to get more of a kind of concrete estimation of percentage, but it's very much his American uh, confessions. And then towards the end of it, it turns more European. And then his first confessions is, is, is just, you know, Manchester is England. But the You've Had Your Time is almost in its own right one of his kind of American novels. <laughs> Well, this brings me on to your own work and how that's refocused um, attention on Burgess in America, rightly so, because as you, as you say, it's there right from the beginning of his uh, his writing life and becomes more and more uh, of a place, uh, ultimately the subject of his, his writing as well. Now, you've written a PhD dissertation about Burgess and America, um, we think the first, and how did you go about it's a huge piece of research, but walk us through it if you can and tell us how you've um, managed to assemble the material for that academic um, inquiry. Yeah, I, I think it's the first. I wasn't able to find any uh, evidence. And, and honestly, I, I think I uh, stumbled upon, um, you know, gold. Uh, it's a massive area of Burgess scholarship that is really underdeveloped and and not many scholars have looked at it. it. It's largely relegated to the footnotes of a lot of, of commentary on Burgess. Uh, and I just found a treasure trove of stuff. I mean, it's just everywhere. And I'm, I'm not even, uh, I basically contacted close to 100 schools and universities uh, throughout America, some in Canada. Um, I conducted over 30 interviews with individuals who knew or met Burgess. I've contacted, I think, a dozen organizations. I found hundreds uh, of photos, pieces of, you know, ephemera documents from universities and private hands across the United States. I mean, there's there's probably thousands more as well. 
Um, I had an, an article published in the Resources of American Literary Study as well about Burgess and pornography in American culture uh, as just being one aspect of this. And then my dissertation uh, is, is being turned into a monograph as well. Um, and it's, it's quite large and it, there could be more. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it's a massive undertaking and I'm excited to have been the first person to kind of jump on it. But I think this is just opening it up for, um, not just Burgess scholars too, but, um, people looking at American literary history. I think Burgess belongs in that conversation, uh, because of how immersed he was in the, the, the culture at the time, how many people he visited, the, the campus lectures that he did. Um, he was a, a kind of American force to be reckoned with at this time that was almost, in a sense, a, a household name, especially when A Clockwork Orange came up. I mean, A Clockwork Orange remains to this day a household title of something. I have uh, students who are uh, 16, 17, 18 years old who may not have seen it, may not have read it, but have heard of it uh, still. So, I mean, that, that legacy continues. Uh, they, they don't know who Burgess is, but I mean, I think that what I hope some of my work is doing is just making, is introducing the significance of America on Burgess's work, as well as the significance that Burgess had in American literary culture and pop culture during this, this period. And I'm really, I think, uh, kind of only at the the tip. I think there's there are probably um, thousands of documents still in public and private hands. There are still people that I'm waiting on to hear back. Uh, there are still uh, archives to probably be you know accessed. I know there are some things that haven't been digitized, haven't been cataloged, haven't been organized, so I can't get access to them. Um, for anyone who's interested in Burgess and interested in in his work. Um, I think there's a lot to be done in this this new little uh, niche. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there's a, a lot that we don't yet know. Um, for example, you know, TV, radio, um, local newspapers, uh, all, all kinds of um, new material that will inevitably, um, you know, come to light at some point. But you've been working on this for, for some time, as we've discussed. I wonder, um, at this stage, as you're reworking your, your research into a book, do you draw any have you drawn even provisionally any conclusions um from your your research into burgess in america um and and what how does that change the picture of uh what we know about him and his uh the, the writing that connects in some way with america so off of uh um the many sources that i have which i i think i've gone through uh i've been to um, England. I've been to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. I've been to the Harry Ransom Center. I've been to the University of Buffalo. I've been to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, after gathering, I, I estimate from my scans that it's probably uh, over 10,000 different resources, ephemera, notes, things from all over the country and multiple countries. Um, I think essentially the conclusion I come to is that especially the five books that I approach in my work, which is MF, The Clockwork Testament, Earthly Powers, The End of the World News, and Enderby's Dark Lady, is that there is a, a massive American influence that is, has been kind of waiting in plain sight and in need of exegesis and analysis and explication. Um, 
and I, I, I don't think it's just in the, the books either, that there's a, an entire kind of untold story of uh, Burgess's life in America and what it meant to him personally, financially, artistically, uh, publicly, privately, uh, that is still kind of uh, being told. I think I tell a, a fraction of that story. I, I tell a, a large fraction of that story, but uh, I think there's still a lot to be, to be done. I think he wasn't an American author in many senses, or he was trying to be an American author at this time. And as I, I mentioned before, I think we t we too, and this is not just because I'm trying to, um, uh, you know, be a hoorah American, <laughs> uh, but I think we have America American uh, audiences to thank for his popularity. Um, not just because it was an American director who, who went on to, you know, arguably make him the most famous because of A Clockwork Orange, but it was American readers, American students, American faculty uh, who were interested in Burgess, who paid for him to come and essentially bankrolled his career from 1966 into the, the late mid 80s. Um, and then it's not to say that it was the, the only source of income for him, but it was a very considerable source of income for him that allowed him to continue to be a writer. And uh, I think there a large portion of that has to go to the kind of American public and the, um, the American institutions that were interested in him. Were it not for America, I don't know if we would, uh, we would have the kind of Burgessian legacy that we, we have today. Um, I don't know if that would exist. Uh, I, I would be interested in hearing kind of counter arguments to that, but after we look at the evidence of uh, of how much time he was um, focused on this culture, lived in this culture, engaged with it, I don't think that we can honestly have a discussion uh, where we remove America anymore. I think it's 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 firmly kind of entrenched now in in how we have to talk about uh, Burgess and his work. And life. It's an exciting subject and clearly uh, an evolving one as well as you uh, find out more about it. But thank you very much, Chris, for, for sharing the, the fruits of your labour and, um, <laughs> and, and informing us. Um, I feel much more informed now about um, the, the connections between uh, Burgess and his American writing, his American context. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew, and to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Christopher W. Furley's book, Anthony Burgess in America, is forthcoming from Manchester University Press. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?